Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, how to manage a disgruntled, non-promoted direct. Part two. Here we go. So Mark, last week you concluded our show by saying professional managers have to be better than this, right? This right. idea of treating people poorly, right? Yeah, I don't think that's what a manager would say, right? He wouldn't say I'm treating them poorly. He's saying I'm being proactive about my responsibility to the organization. I, I have reason to believe this person is going to work against me. Therefore, I have to treat them differently. And what we've learned the hard way watching hundreds of managers, thousands of managers over the years is that the managers who start looking for people who are working against them, particularly if you're a brand new manager, you will misread things that are normal, that are within the realm of normalcy relative to the tension that always exists between managers and directs. You know what I mean? You know how often at client sites we end up having discussions about, hey, tension is normal, conflict is normal, right? Right. And, and there's going to be some conflict. There, there's no balance. There's only some sort of dynamic tension. And so the big problem that managers have is come to us with a question, what do I do differently? And the answer, of course, is that's the wrong question. Right? <laughs> no, you don't do anything differently. And the moment you start thinking you need to do something differently and you look for the spot rather than the sheet, you start seeing the spot. And you, saw, you see this person cover with spots. And so we're going to recommend something terribly old-fashioned, of course, rolling <laughs> out the Trinity, and further than that as well, but with, with, with an eye toward, obviously, the special needs that, that somebody who's disgruntled might have. Okay, so let's, let's talk about rolling out the Trinity. That's what we do. Um, yeah. And, and it's not like this is the first time we've ever recommended yeah. that. So. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't want to feel like, I, I really honestly with this cast do not feel like the one trick pony. The one-on-ones feedback coaching delegation are not the answer to everything, but they are a framework that a professional manager uses to deal with this particular distinctive problem. If you're going to treat everybody with the same level of respect and you're a professional manager, then we think a great starting point, not the only starting point, folks, but a great starting point is rolling out the Trinity. And the first thing you do is one-on-ones to build the relationship. Then once you've done that, then you've got the feedback model where you talk about performance, you delegate in order to grow the organization, and then you coach people to develop their individual performance. And folks, if you're new to manager tools, please go back to our basics casts and the feeds we have there with many, many casts. Mike, probably what? More than 30, maybe 40 or so casts, is it? Or yeah, is probably. It? Yeah. 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 Where we talk over and over and over again about these very basic principles that make it so that management is boring and yet terribly effective. And it's not dramatic. It's not the fear and drama that you're, that you're probably thinking about when you have a disgruntled direct. Incredible details about what to do and how to do it. But look, since that disgruntled direct is one of your directs, they go through the rollout process of the Trinity. You take, you do one-on-ones with them just like you do anybody else. They get one-on-ones for weeks. Nothing different. Same one-on-one, just, just as if they didn't have a problem. Because again, they might not. Half an hour each week, same as everybody else. You take time, you build the relationship, you get to know them, right? And here's what's important relative to them. The time that you spend getting to know them means they get plenty of time to prove to you all by themselves, with no rumors from others to cloud your judgments, 
whether or not they're good or bad in terms of performance, whether or not they have an issue with you getting the job they wanted, whether or not they really do intend to act on their feelings, or whether or not they can feel disappointed which I'm, I don't think anybody, I mean, if somebody, if folks, if you're listening and you think it's wrong for somebody to feel disappointed that you got the job and they didn't, then yeah, you okay. need to rethink that. Cause yeah. right. Well, no, but yeah. Oh, that's wrong. He shouldn't feel that way. The company always makes the right decision. Well, think again there, buddy. But look, sometimes people feel disappointed and they may even be disgruntled. They may actually feel disgruntledly, if that's a word, <laughs> and yet they still may deliver quality work, maintain good professional relationships with others, and not work against you either subtly or malignantly or actively or benignly, whatever, however you want to call it. And if they're a little bit disgruntled, but you get good work out of them and they behave like a professional, oughtn't we treat them like a professional and, and continue to do the things that are causing them to do good output of work? Yeah. If there is an issue, following one-on-ones, eventually you're going to get to yes. feedback, right? So you ha you're going to have a way to address it. Of yeah, course, exactly. I'm sure we'll cover that a little bit more later. Yeah, and, and, and when you get to feedback, because you've done the one-on-ones, you have the relationship. If you jump on feedback too soon with somebody who's disgruntled, they're going to feel like you're singing the, singling them out. And that really brings us to the next point, driving it down a level, which when, when we brief one-on-ones, we don't talk for half an hour or 45 minutes just about the concept of respect. But look, if in fact you decide at some point that someone is disgruntled and working against you, the only way you're going to have total credibility doing that is by starting off in neutral about them and letting them prove that to you. If you pull the trigger too quickly, people are going to judge you as being unfair to them. You have to be willing to ignore the input you get about someone who might be disgruntled. And frankly, because people spread stories of drama, somebody will say, he got it, but I really deserved it. And, and, and they might, the moment they say that in the break room, regret that, but that's the story you're going to hear. Two people are going to come and tell you, well, you know, you've got to be careful about Robert because he he was complaining that you got the job and he didn't. And now you turn that into a half hour diatribe about how you stink when in fact it was nothing of the sort and they regretted saying it as soon as they said it. I mean, gosh, who, who here who's talking like me or listening who can say, oh, I've never said anything that the moment it came out of my mouth, I didn't regret it. I mean, gee, uh, yeah. right? Let's not overreact. And at the same time, let's not try to find every single detail about every single thing they did that might have been perceived as undermining you in some way. Look, if, if somebody is disgruntled, that's their state of mind. But it's not necessarily their behavior. Behavior is what, drive perform what drives their performance, not state of mind. I know you can read a lot of books. I just finished one that's all about attitude and everything else. Well, I don't know. I don't agree. I mean, behavior is what drives performance, not state of mind. Consider this simple thought experiment, experiment, folks. You're interviewing two people, relatively equal technical skills. One you've heard has a crappy attitude, but he combines that with being polite all the time to everybody. He's a professional. He delivers his work on time and on budget. You know, he misses some deadlines, but 90% of the time he's on time. Solid, performer, good, smart. Another guy, you're told, has a wonderful mental outlook. But he rubs people the wrong way. He routinely overpromises and he underdelivers. And he's late a lot. I mean, frankly, wouldn't you hire the first guy with what we would call the bad attitude? Yeah, he's got a bad attitude, but he keeps it to himself. I'm okay with that. Yeah, exactly. Which, of course, then begs the question, well, what is attitude? Well, attitude is really the words we use to describe the internal drivers of external behaviors. Yeah, the, most of you who are listening goes, wait, the first guy, he doesn't have a bad attitude if he does everything right. 
And here's the beauty of that statement, folks. You just proved our point. We agree with you. If you're told someone is disgruntled about not getting the promotion you got, and you're told that you should watch her attitude, but she does everything she's supposed to in a professional way, working toward good relationships. Oh, everybody has their bumps along the way, right? Don't you owe her the same courtesy of evaluating her actual behaviors rather than seeing all of her behaviors through the input about a potential attitude problem when there's no evidence through her behaviors of any potential attitude problem? So that's why we say treat people with respect, engage in the managerial behaviors like one-on-ones that will give them a framework to build a trusting and respectful relationship with you. And what it boils down to is giving her the benefit of the doubt. If you'll let that mentality of giving the benefit of doubt and treating people with respect underlying everything you do with this direct, you'll give yourself and them more time to work through their emotions and for you to have plenty of data if in fact you're going to go talk to them. And look, this is my favorite rationale of all. Treating a potentially disgruntled person with respect, you reduce the chances that any performance problems they have are because of you and how you're treating them rather than due to their own attitude and their own behavior. If people see you going the extra mile, working on the relationship, spending time, not jumping to conclusions the moment somebody's a half degree off plumb, and you work at it, and you don't talk about their disgruntlement, and somebody mentions to you, say, you know, it's not something I'm worried about. He's a good performer. I treat him like I treat everybody else. Everybody's a good performer until they prove otherwise, and you have to work pretty hard to prove otherwise with me. If, in fact, that person is disgruntled, acts on it in a way that's unprofessional or takes you down or takes the team down in some way, everyone is going to march to your side. Simple. Yeah, true. Okay, so what else we need to talk about today? Well, okay, so, so look, I want to take that a step further because I, I think this whole attitude versus behavior thing is an underlying theme that I hear when I talk to people. I, I think most people who are listening right now, folks, judge yourselves. I know I, I fall prey to this myself. We all believe we're really good at reading people, really good. And yeah. we think with three data points, bam, we know a person. I've been married, uh, what, 28 years now as of... Yeah. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and my wife still tells me, don't try to read my mind. <laughs> so I'm still, after 28 years <laughs> of practice, I'm still pretty bad at it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and yet, by the same token, even though we pride ourselves on that ability, we then don't want people who meet us for the first time to take three data points and extrapolate our entire life from it, right? Yeah, even after 28 years, they don't want you to do that. <laughs> yeah, so think about this. Let's consider two alternatives. Maybe this guy is disgruntled and he's actually going to be a problem. Or maybe, in fact, he's a professional and you've only heard that he is disgruntled. Okay. So let's take a look at our approach relative to each of these sides of that potential coin. How come I get this like feeling that this is kind of a horseman's wager kind of argument we're going to have? Yeah, well, yeah, it is. It is. But, but, you know, I think with this one, going back to the point I made earlier at the start of this episode of the show, is that I think managers ask us the wrong questions. What do I do about this disgruntled person? And we say, you don't do anything about it. You let them, if you'll pardon the expression, dig their own grave and you you don't hand them the shovel, make them go find the shovel and dig it and make them dig it really deep, you know, on their own 
right? And, and treat them with respect and dignity and so on, rather than digging the hole and saying, okay, I know you're going to jump in. Go ahead, jump in, jump in, jump in, jump in, right? And because I think managers are looking for a solution to the problem, when in fact the problem often doesn't exist, the problem was said because there's this meme that disgruntled non-promoted directs is a big dang deal. Well, it's only a big dang deal because so many managers on the slimmest of margins, as slimmest of data points, act on it and then exacerbate the problem and make it into a dramatic moment that everybody remembers for 10 years. Oh yeah. Remember when that guy didn't get the promotion? Oh, I remember that. That's the one thing I'm going to do when I'm a boss. I'm going to make sure I stamp out all those problems immediately. And it's all driven from wrongheaded thinking. So I want to, I want to make a case for the 20, 30, 40% of the listeners out there that are saying, yeah, you know, they're saying that, but, but they have to say that because they're already one-on-one -on -one guys, they're feedback guys. And, and they teach us that Mark and Mike teach us all the time about respect and dignity and communication and, and yet specific behaviors to do those, to, to show respect and dignity and so on. But look, let, just, just bear with me for a minute. Let, let's suppose that the person is actually disgruntled and we recommend that you do one-on-ones, you build your relationship, and at some point you, 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 follow with feed, you follow up with feedback when, in fact, they're actively working against you. And there's behavior you can actually talk to them about as opposed to just rumors that, oh, he's really upset. Rumors are not behavior, folks. Rumors are not behavior. The way I describe this approach to a manager who says, I don't know what to do, I call this the plenty of rope approach, okay? Let's say your direct is not going to get over it, okay? And, and look, it does happen. You know, we'll probably hear about one case a year where somebody tells us a story of a direct who actively ended up working against their boss. And, and it's clear to us that the direct is, is, is pouting as aggressively as they can and is not behaving as a professional and needs to be addressed, right? Yeah, they've pretty much taken their professional ball and gone home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They, they kicked the professional ball out the door and said, I'm, I don't have to play that way anymore. I'm going to be I'm going to be poor, poor, pitiful me. And look, that kind of behavior, we don't recommend you tolerate. When a direct works against you, it's wrong. And they, at some point, either have to change their behavior, regardless of whether their opinions or their feelings change or not, or folks, let me be honest, you're going to have to fire them if they never change, because that, that's not appropriate. It's not professional to work against the team. Okay. But note as well here that we started out talking about a disgruntled person, but then we kind of switched and started talking about their behavior. Folks, to be clear, what we're talking about here is somebody who is behaving in a way that proves they're disgruntled or in a way that is less than effective or professional. I'd have coined a new word called profective, which is professionally effective. So here's what those things might look like. They're talking about you behind your back. And of course, you wouldn't know that because it, you don't actually see it when they talk behind your back. But people tell you what they told them and you believe the third party input. And by the way, there's a podcast about how to deal with that. They're complaining to others about them not getting the job. In other words, they're verbalizing their disappointment. They're still complaining to you about not getting the promotion. Further, they're turning in work that is substandard. They may be blaming it on their attitude, but it doesn't matter. You don't pay them to do good work only when they have a good attitude. They're tearing down the team in some way. And for folks, for those of you who are just joining us, you know, um, we've been putting out podcasts like this for, for six years. We recommend, Manager Tools recommends no tolerance. And translation, that lets to be clear, at some point you'll fire them for two offenses of a direct. Long-term consistent failure to perform after you've worked with them on trying to help them and repetitive efforts which destroy the team and team morale. There are other things, obviously, harassment and, and, and violating ethical laws and so on. But the two big ones are lack of performance and destroying the team. 
So if this person is actually disgruntled and there is behavior to prove either that or in other words, disgruntlement working against you or if behavior to prove poor performance, it's still better to wait until there is ample evidence of their failures, whatever form they're taking, before we take action against them. Why is that? I mean, they're tearing down the team. I mean, there's the impact of that, but you're still recommending that we wait. The simple fact is, going back to the point about, you know, give them plenty of rope or, you know, let them dig their own hole. If you react too quickly because so many directs hate managers who are uncomfortable with their power. And so, therefore, anything managers do, which appears to be shoring up their power, when in fact, folks, as a manager, you don't have to shore up your power. You have the power. It doesn't need shoring up. You may be working against it and just stop that, but that's not shoring up your power. If you do anything that appears to be detrimental to somebody else, in order to shore up your power, you're going to be seen as using a really big weapon against somebody who's less powerful than you. It's like a bully beating up on a on a little kid. I guess in this case, it's even worse because the person you're beating up on Many people could think that you consider them a rival, right? I mean, oh, that's, they were oh, in the running for going. your job. Therefore, they are a rival and you're just purging, <laughs> you're purging yeah. the nobility, so to speak. If you react too quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like Game of Thrones, right? You lose. I have more power. You're dead, right? That's how it's going to go down in the emotional and cultural history books of your team. You use the excuse of someone else's disappointment to get rid of them. Now, of course, that leaves out all the things they did that were unprofessional. But if, in fact, you don't let everybody else see all the unprofessional things he or she does, then they're going to see you using power on their emotional state of disappointment rather than on asking them to leave the team because they're not helping the team anymore. Even if they deserve being treated poorly because they're treating others poorly and you need to address it forcefully, moving too soon is going to be seen as a political decision. It's born out of your lack of confidence rather than as a professional decision around performance. Now, I, I want to say this just as a brief aside. If this were executive tools, we'd have a little bit of subtlety here because there are some exceptions to this at more senior executive levels when people are working against you or when there's lack of, of coherence about missions and so on. But it's really rare. One out of 100 of the cases are going to be at the executive level. And executives don't get fired. They just get asked to resign to pursue uh, other uh, interests. And look, folks, if you're a manager tools certified manager, you know our recommended approach to handling someone who is either not performing or tearing down the team. We recommend you working hard on the relationship, investing the same amount and maybe even a little bit more in that relationship, provide all reasonable measures of effort to turn them around. We recommend repeatedly communicating, and there's a podcast about this that goes into detail about how to, it's actually called How to Fire Someone. Well, almost, because we don't want anyone to fire somebody if you can, if it can be avoided by working with them to improve their performance, to get them above the bar. You repeatedly communicate that performance must change, that the behavior must change, whether it's tearing down the team or whether it's failure to do their job. Uh, we recommend staying with them through six and even nine months worth of failures. And only then do we recommend you start the more formal process of letting somebody go. And uh, hopefully you'll been keeping notes. But at that point, you start formally documenting uh, to have make it easier for HR to help you with the with the risk uh, with risk aversion. At the you end. misspoke there. You said six or nine months, right? You meant six or nine weeks, right? Gosh, Mike, you just yeah. I mess up so often. You just go ahead to the rest of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But folks, if you're listening, that, that's, he's a great point. You know, Mike, you, you just brought up something. 
that's thematically equivalent to, to, to the purpose of this show and how important I think this show is for so many managers. So many managers come to it thinking, if somebody's got a problem, I got to get them out, right? Oh, well, they've been told that, right? They got to make quick decisions. They need to get- Yeah, they got to make quick decisions. Yeah. And yet, of course, big decisions- we don't want to make too quickly because they have, you know, big decisions poorly made have lasting negative impacts. But yeah, managers come in and thinking, well, I've got to, you know, if a guy's not performing, I got to show that I'm, I'm a decision maker and I got to find somebody to replace him. And that's wrong thinking. No, I'm in it six to nine months. If somebody works for you, the barrier to entry hopefully is high enough on your team that replacement costs are high and the loss of, in, uh, of, of uh, institutional memory is significant and you want to keep people if you can. And so it's far better to save somebody than cut them loose early and then send the message to everybody else on the team. I could cut you loose early too. If you go through a two month process of performing poorly, you could be, you know, you're on the bubble and you could be gone. Different companies have different cultures about how long you're willing to wait. This is manager tools. And we say you got to work with somebody for six to nine months before you start thinking, my gosh, I really, I've done everything I can. I can look in the mirror in the morning and say, I have to admit failure but it's not failure due to a lack of effort, interest, time, and focus. Right. And everybody will know that. Everybody will know that yes. you did what you were supposed to do. The direct may not have, right? That's why they're that's why they're leaving the organization, but no one will doubt that you did yeah. what you were supposed to do as a manager. Yeah, you worked on the relationship. And when you work on a relationship consistently with somebody who's disgruntled, you're going to be seen as somebody who goes above and beyond. And frankly, that's what great managers do. Not six weeks, not nine weeks, but six months or nine months, right? If you follow our rolling out the Trinity guidance after about three months of one-on-ones, it's going to be time to give feedback. And we recommend you start with positive feedback. And then only after six to eight weeks of positive feedback to bring the team, do you go to negative feedback? Now, look, we're not suggesting that you have to wait five months to give somebody who's behaving in a disgruntled way negative feedback. You could deliver it more quickly than that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But just to be clear, folks, uh, in terms of in terms of this process of the actual disgruntled person, we're recommending you wait longer than you think you should. I will say now, here's how it would sound if you gave somebody some feedback. You'd say, hey, Richard, can I give you some feedback? When you tell everyone in the staff meeting the way you did today, Mark, maybe if you had the technical competence that I do, you'd understand, but I'll dumb it down for you. It comes across, you know, but, but I'll dumb it down for you. Richard, it comes across as sour grapes and it hurts the team. Can you change that for me? No anger, no fear, no edge. Frankly, I'm not worried that Richard doesn't think I have the technical competence. I don't really need technical competence. Apparently, my technical competence relative to his was less important than what the company thought was the other things that made a difference in why I got the job and he didn't. And by the way, if you're a high C and somebody insults you by telling you you have low technical competence, of course, the mental response, I, I told many executives who are high C's, who are perfectionists, this, in the course of my career, and they all love it, say, remember, he's one level below you. So by definition, logically, he's not as smart as you. And if he's not as smart as you, then his judgment of your technical competence is probably flawed in some way. There you so, go. <laughs> yeah. So he may believe that, but he's wrong. So therefore, his judgment of your technical competence is largely irrelevant. Um, I remember the first time I told that to a guy, and actually it wasn't in Silicon Valley, it was in Los Angeles. Um, a hardware firm. And he just beamed. He said, oh, I feel so much better now. Because um, <laughs> he was worried that he was getting promoted too fast and didn't have the technical competence to run the, the groups that he had. Um, okay. So now look, for those of you who are wondering, what if a person you know, does something really significant, something beyond the pale 
early on before you've built the relationship that you feel needs some sort of addressing. Maybe they post a threatening note, which is serious, serious stuff. Or they interrupt meetings loudly with complaints like, wow, man, is a person, you know, or do they need help? Do they need, you know, counseling or something? Or maybe they don't show up for work. We're not suggesting here that feedback is your only option. We are suggesting that the professional manager starts with relationships and then positive performance communication and spends enough time getting to know the person that probably their their anger will drain away. But if it's still there at some point and you, when you finally get to negative feedback, you'll be able to deliver it well and they'll understand it and there'll be a place for them to hear it. But if they do something significant, if you think it will help and they've done something egregious, you can and we would recommend you sit them down in your office. And rather than giving them feedback, you'd say, Richard, you're going to get yourself in trouble here really quickly if this continues. Or you could say, Richard, your behavior doing X leaves me no choice but to tell you you're in trouble. And if it doesn't stop, there's going to be documentation and HR involved. I don't want that. I don't think you want that. I think the simple thing to say is no matter what you're feeling, Richard, it's your behavior that's the problem. If it continues, those kind of things continue. You won't work here in a month or two. Now, look, folks, please. Don't listen to what I just said and say, oh, Mark finally gave me words that I can use when somebody really ticks me off. Please don't do that. I give you that as a suggestion for the one in 1,000 chance that the person whom you've been told is disgruntled is not only in fact disgruntled, but then they're willing to be egregious in their displays of behavior to prove that they're disgruntled, okay? It's unbelievably rare that you would have to do that, but that's how I would do it. And as Mike and I have said so many times and to, to many managers who have been shocked by it, it's far better to deliver that with calm, with poise, with ease, certainly clarity, but you don't have to threaten. You don't have to knit your brows together. You don't have to do a Swinson unibrow. You don't have to put an edge in your voice as if to say, I have real power here because they know you have power. You've got a big fat, big fat red sign in your forehead. And if you yell or if you point your finger, if you raise your voice and the big fat red sign gets too big, they're not going to hear you. They're just going to say, see, this is why I deserve to be the boss and not him. Small things make him angry. Right. Well, it's pretty clear after that explanation why you call this the the plenty of rope scenario, right? I mean, in this case, you're, you've given somebody <laughs> so much rope. I mean, if they're hanging, they hung themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah that's what I want. It. They did it. Yeah. You know what? Think of it this way. This is a bad thing to say, but it'll make sense to people who have been listening to the show. If you're looking for spots on a person, right, you're going to see the spots. If somebody tells you somebody's not a good guy, you're going to find things that prove to you that they're not a good guy you're going to begin to see the person as a spot. You're going to start focusing on the spot and you're going to forget about the sheet, which is the rest of your team. And if he goes, the rest of the team is left. And all you've gotten good at is cutting out the spot. And the team feels like you've abandoned them with your laser focus on the spot. So the the longer you wait, which proves you have both humility and high ego strength, which is essentially professional part of professional maturity, your team will come to your side. And if in fact he or she has to go when they do, the team will close ranks quickly and be thankful for it. And they will see you as having done the right thing rather than eliminating a rival. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're exactly right. The rest of your team will think you move too quickly if you do. As long as you're the boss, it will have been your behavior. You're pulling the trigger too fast, not the disgruntled guy's stuff that he or she did. That's going to be the cause of the problems in your team. The longer you wait, the more you show patience, the more your team will come to your side. I've seen this over and over and over again with managers who are dealing with difficult folks. Folks will let their friends vent a little bit. But unless you have some seriously unprofessional folks throughout your team, they're going to admire you for being patient. And at some point, they're going to begin to turn on your peer, on their peer and tell them to shut up and help, or they're going to have some courage. They're going to come talk to you. And they'll also tell him, hey, if you really hate it that bad, have courage, quit. And that happens too. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll finish this one up next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long.